Well, we're on the home stretch of our study in 1 Timothy that we've been looking at. I think we started it back in September, and we're getting to the close of that letter. And since this is a letter, I guess rather than saying we're on the home stretch, it might be better to say we're on the last page, if we can imagine Paul having written this letter. The things that we'll see here this week and next week are the things that Paul wrote in his letter just before he was about to seal the letter, if that's what they did, and send it off to Timothy. We don't write a lot of long letters anymore uh, because of the world that we live in, this sort of instant reply world. Our, our correspondence these days is more of a back and forth dialogue, we could say. And so maybe we should just think of this as more of a present day article or essay. But when someone gets to the end of an essay, they'll usually want to drive their message home one last time. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here at the end of this uh, first letter that he wrote to Timothy. There's a second one coming, but this is the first letter that, that God inspired from Paul to Timothy, and that letter is now coming to a close. And so I just wanted to take a few minutes just to recap the purpose of the letter. Essentially here, Paul is, has been telling Timothy right from the beginning, he tells him to remain in Ephesus, he's been telling him to stay in the city and to straighten out the church that exists in that city, and, and actually to protect and to warn the church from uh, false teachers that were sort of in the vicinity and were subtly and sometimes not so subtly threatening to derail the church with their uh, different doctrines and their strange teachings. And so half of the time in this letter, Paul is really uh, warning Timothy to beware of these false teachers and the kinds of things that they're teaching. And the other half of the time, he's really just trying to encourage Timothy to, to, to go for it. To to remind him that he's up for the task. He can do this. Timothy is not as uh, seasoned as Paul is. As he's likely, so there's likely a little bit of the of the fear factor going on for for Timothy. He's a younger guy who's going to be called to challenge some of the older leaders, and so it's understandable that he's a little bit hesitant to go in there. But Paul continuously reassures Timothy that he's got what it takes. And even more importantly, he reminds Timothy that he's got God on his side. This is the truth that Timothy is defending. This is the good teaching. This is the sound doctrine. And because of that, Timothy can take courage. And and Paul reminds him that that he can go in there. He can be courageous. The second letter of Timothy tells us that maybe Timothy was a little bit timid. And so he needs this encouragement. He's being reminded here that he's God's man for this hour and for this task. Well, that helps us understand the words that Paul uses to start out this last encouragement to Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, that's exactly what Timothy needed to hear. Timothy didn't only have Paul's authority to go into the the task that he was being sent into, this assignment that he was being given, this tough work. He also had the authority of God himself, Timothy is the man of God, and he, he actually shows up in a long line of people who were called the man of God, starting with Moses, a lot of the prophets were called the man of God, and now here, Paul, under the authority of, and the inspiration of Scripture, is calling Timothy the man of God. He was God's man for the truth, God's man for the gospel. So that's one part of the setup for what Paul is about to write. 
He wants to infuse some courage into Timothy. But the other part that I mentioned, Paul's concern for the church. I want to go back there. Like I said, the church there in Ephesus was in danger of having their faith shipwrecked. Or better yet, maybe the Christian faith itself was in danger of being shipwrecked in that church. So remember that Paul is writing, and and here are his own words from chapter 3, verse 14. He says, actually tells us why he's writing this letter. I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that you may know how someone, how, how church people actually ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, so there, in capsule form, is the reason that Paul is writing this letter. To tell, so Timothy might tell the church how to behave. And so when we put these two things together, we're justified in taking Paul's instructions and encouragements to Timothy as being Paul's instructions for the church. As we've been making our way through this letter, I've been, I've been challenged and, and humbled in my position as a, as a pastor and as a church leader. There's a lot for me to learn here. But we've also been applying these truths to our church, asking ourselves how, how, how we can be the kind of church that God is asking of us. And the quality that we've been seeing here in chapter 6, which is really the overarching Christian aim for those who claim to follow God, is this virtue called godliness or godlikeness. People who claim to follow God should naturally strive to be like God. Churches who, who claim to proclaim God should aim to be like God. And so that's where we want to go. We want to know how we can be godly people as part of a godly church. When Paul addresses Timothy with, but as for you, O man of God, he's also saying, but as for you, O church of God. So let's take a look at how he encourages Timothy and us. So, If you have your Bibles open there to 1 Timothy 6, just look down at verse 11. I'm just going to read up to verse 17, and then, Lord willing, we'll finish off the letter next Lord's Day. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to see it again as what it is, as authoritative, as inerrant, as inspired by you. And with that in mind, our Father, we pray that you would take these truths and that you would press them deep into our hearts so that we might be transformed 
so that we might indeed become more godly as we wait for the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's to this end that we pray. Amen. Well, when a sentence starts with the word, but, it's obviously making a contrast here with with what just came before. And the contrast could go back all the way down to verse 3, when it starts talking about people who don't agree with the sound words that accord with godliness, that match up with godliness. And, and that is indeed the general theme of this section. What is it exactly that accords with godliness? What does godliness look like? Well, just up in verse 9 and 10, it tells us what godliness is not like. And it has to do with, with someone's desires and, and cravings. So look back at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, And so there's the setup to verses 11 and following. You've got this craving for riches and for money versus a craving for God himself. And so here's a patently obvious sentence. Godliness must include God. Godliness, by definition, must have God at its center. Right? Anything else? Any, Any other desires or any other loves or any other... Cravings, any other treasure, whether that's money or whether that's status or, or lust or power, isn't godliness. There's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. It's the overarching desire for it, over and above the desire for God, that makes it something less than godliness. So isn't it just perfect that Paul starts off that contrast by calling attention to the man of God? The false teachers, those that somehow imagined that godliness is a means of gain, back in verse 4, were, we could say, they were money's men. We're supposed to be God's men. God's people. The godly must desire God. That's exactly what the rest of this section is all about. Paul wants to show the man of God and the church of God how to get to God. How to, how to come to the point where, as we said last week, we use these, this line, that God is enough. That God is enough. Where God is the all-satisfying treasure. Where God becomes the all-consuming quest of our lives. And so you have these two kinds of Quests really set in contrast to each other. But the glorious thing here is that the first one is squashed by this one. Mr. Lenski, the German Lutheran commentator, does great at expressing the futility of one pursuit versus the glory of the other. He says this. He says this paragraph, talking about this paragraph that we just read from verse 11 and following, presents the entire positive side of godliness which shuts out the love of money. 
Such a vice will be smothered by all that is here presented. Paul bombards the love of money with all the guns of his heavy battery and and crushes it with the whole avalanche of the virtues and the supreme aim of the Christian life. I love that. True godliness shuts down and crushes the desire for riches and money and really anything that the world holds as valuable. After Paul's done here, the love of money will be shown for what it is. Futile. Empty. C.S. Lewis's famous quote would fit here in this part. Remember he had this line, he says, Our, our desires are too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, he says. Well, Paul starts out with four things that we need to do to cultivate a quest for godliness. Those are in verses 11 and 12, followed by one glorious motivation in verses 13 to 16. And so it's really a straightforward outline here marked by those five commands, those five imperatives that show up in this passage, those five do this words, action words. All of them involve movement of some kind. And that's what it means to become godly. We want to be moving toward godliness. We want to be on a track that leads us up to godliness. And so you can see the words right here. Godliness happens as we flee, as we pursue, as we fight, and as we take hold. And then down in verse 13, Paul tells Timothy to keep. It's the last command there. So the first move we have to make on the road to godliness is to flee or to take flight. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, meaning all those things that he's just talked about that I read back in verses 9 to 10, and if you want, going right back to verse 3. Those are the things. Flee those things. These cravings that threaten to move us further away from God, we have to learn how to run away from them. This implies that these things can kind of get a grip on us if we linger around them or let them linger around us for too long. Don't hang around those kinds of cravings and desires. It's being able to recognize that those things can have power. Being able to recognize that they have power over us, along with a recognition that we are weak. The solution? Flee. Take flight. Run. And it's a continual sort of verb here. Keep running. There are certain things that just need to be avoided. And they might look different for different people. For some, it, it might just be the kind of stuff that, that engages or that kicks in our desire for riches and for money. It might be something as simple as reading the financial section in the newspaper or the stocks. Or maybe even the new home section. For some people, seeing a bingo hall or looking at that glass that's on the counter right at the checkout just before you get to pay your money at a convenience store or or pay for your goods. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's got the lottery tickets underneath. (laughs) Your mind starts saying things back to you like, 
boy, I could get rich in an instant. And I'll never win if I don't buy one. Well, just like that, you've been had. What are you craving? Are you satisfied and content in the situation that God has given you? Or are you craving something that you've been duped into thinking is better? Well, the solution for you, if that's you, is to flee, to run. Other people might not have that same temptation, but your weakness might be a different desire. Sexual immorality, gaming, drink, the desire for acceptance, the desire to be a perfect parent with perfect children, desire for good grades. For me, when I was younger, it was friends that were keeping me from God back when I was a a teenager and a young adult, and, and I finally had to get away from them. That was a turning point in my life when I said, I can't handle this. I need to flee. I need to run. So I was in Winnipeg that time, and I said, I'm running all the way to Edmonton. That's what happened. Big transformation in my life, one of those turning moments. Find ways to run from those temptations that prey on your particular weakness. Did you know that fleeing is actually a biblical strategy? Just reading in my devotions this week again about Joseph. He finally had to flee from the advances, remember, of his boss's wife, even though it cost him, well, not only his job and the prison sentence, but it cost him the garment on his back. Even before that, Lot and his family had to flee the temptations that were there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Proverbs 5 says to keep far away from the forbidden woman. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says to flee sexual immorality. Chapter 10, verse 14, flee from idolatry. If you go over to, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What are the things that you need to take flight from in order to be moving towards godliness? What are the things that are getting in the way of your track towards God? And so the first movement towards godliness is actually moving away from other stuff. But at the same time, as we flee the bad stuff, it says here that we have to follow after the good stuff. And so the second half of verse 11, pursue righteousness. Godliness, love, faith, steadfastness, gentleness. Six things, really, they're they're, they're three pairs of two. Here's what the godly pursue. And, And notice here, we're right back to the issue of character that's been coming up right through 1 Timothy. What are we like? What are, what are the kinds of virtues that, that, that we want to describe us? Are we pursuing these things? So let's take them very quickly. The first two are righteousness and godliness. To pursue righteousness, so this isn't the imputed righteousness of Christ that it's talking about here. This is basically just what the word means, to do the right thing. Are you striving to do that which is good and right? Even when it's hard. Or do you constantly trip up and do the wrong thing or, or react in the wrong way? Do you just go where your natural sin takes you? Or can you stop yourself and do the right thing? Do you get angry and frustrated? Or can you keep your emotions in check and, and exercise restraint? So, so this is really what you're like on the outside. Godliness, on the other hand, is the kind of, well, it's really the overarching thing here, but it's what you're like on the inside. 
Are you cultivating your reverence toward God so, so that all your actions will then follow? Pursue righteousness and godliness. The second pair there is faith and love, and, and those two show up together quite a bit in the New Testament, even here in 1 Timothy. Do we live, first of all, faith, believing in God every step of the way? Do we have a quiet trust that God is in control? When we start to drift into, others desire, into other desires, it's actually because we don't trust God. That's what the issue is. Materialism, to use the example of the previous section, can become a stumbling block because, precisely because we don't believe God. We don't actually believe that he'll provide. We don't actually believe that he'll come through for us. People of God, pursue faith. And do we love people? These are the kinds of things we need to pursue, a growing and deepening trust in God for all things and a growing and deepening love toward God and toward others. Remember Jesus summarized what the law is when the lawyer tried to trip him up. He says, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second command is like the first, to love love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you love God? Do you love people? And finally, we ought to pursue steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness just means to pursue perseverance. What, what do you do when things aren't going well or when you face hard times, when trials start to come? Do you retreat? Do you shrink back? Or do you hold your ground and stand firm in the truth? Are you pursuing steadfastness? And then what about when people oppose you? How do you react with difficult people? Do you strike back verbally or maybe in writing? Do you fire off nasty letters? Well, the godly response here is gentleness. And that's the virtue a godly person ought to pursue. Stand up for the truth. Stand up for Christ by all means. But do it in a spirit of gentleness. It's actually interesting if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 that, uh, that gentleness can actually bring about a good result. A great result. 2 Timothy 2.24 And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, listen, with gentleness. And look at the result. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil. Why? Because the Lord's servant was gentle. So flee from the wrong kinds of desires, follow after, pursue the right kinds of virtues and qualities. And thirdly, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Engage the battle, O man of God. Engage the battle, O church of God. The picture here is the kind of uh, agonizing effort. It's actually the word here, agon. The agonizing effort that athletes exert in order to get the best result. That's what the man of God must do. That's what the church must do. In this case, the fight of the godly is a good fight because it's the fight of the faith. It's the fight for the gospel. The church must always contend for the truth. The church has to contend for the gospel. The gospel, just like it was in Ephesus, is constantly under attack. That has not changed. Some of the attacks are subtle. Some of the attacks are more obvious. 
This is a call not to back down when it comes to the content of the faith, when it comes to the gospel itself. We have to stay engaged. If we don't, if we get complacent, we can fall prey to the danger. Verse 10 there, we can start to lose our focus. When we lose our focus, when we maybe start to love the wrong things, desire the wrong things, when we disengage in the good fight of the faith, the danger is that we could go back down the road of those who have, what does it say there? Those who have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves. Fight the good fight of the faith. And finally, verse 12, take hold. This is the last movement here. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, recalling Timothy's conversion and his baptism where he professed the faith. Not only is he to flee the cravings of the world and to follow after the good things and to fight the good fight, he's also to fasten on to eternal life. If you're a Christian, you've heard this lots of times, and it's true. We often are told to live with an eternal perspective. And it's especially true here in this context. He's, he's just talked about the danger of desires for temporary things, the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil, evils, senseless and harmless desires. He says, don't, don't, don't keep reaching and grasping for, for those things. They're a dead end. Don't grasp onto material stuff. Don't grasp for material life. Grasp onto eternal life. Here's something that's worthwhile and lasting. This is the life to which you were called. This is the life of the godly. Live with an eternal perspective. Live for God. Don't live for earthly treasures. So this is the man of God. These are the actions that can help us as believers as we, as we start to move towards godliness. These are the actions that can help us as a church as we strive to be a godly church. We need to flee worldliness. We need to pursue godliness. We need to fight the good fight and we need to hold fast to eternal life. And all of that leads Paul to point to a glorious motive for doing all this. We we can't generate this kind of thing on our own. We need God. And God is indeed there to help us with this. He gives that final imperative. He charges Timothy in verse 13 to keep the commandment. And so this isn't just the charge for, or a call for Timothy to charge himself up and to do this. It's a charge that is chock full of motivations and reminders of who God is. It's just another reminder that if we want to strive toward godliness, it all starts with knowing God. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So in the presence of these two, in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ who is there to keep the commandment unstained and free from approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. First, what's Paul asking Timothy to keep? What is the commandment? I think it's just really the entirety of the gospel. This is is the whole enchilada, the whole package of truth, the full counsel of God, the entire word of God. He's saying keep it. Don't, don't stray away from it. 
Down in verse 20, he says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. He wants Timothy, and by extension the church, to stay true to the gospel, to make sure it, it stays in its purest form. He wants him to protect it. But don't miss the motivations that are attached here to help Timothy in his quest for godliness. The first is that God the Father and God the Son will be with us in this quest. We don't do this on our own. God the Father and God the Son will be with us every step of the way. I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus to keep the commandment. And so we already know that every believer has the Holy Spirit, right? As we're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in us. But here's a reminder that the triune God is with us in our quest to stay true to God, in our quest for godliness. God is ever-present. God the Father, the one who gave us life through the gospel, will never leave us or forsake us. God the Son, the one who innocently suffered and was tortured and, and eventually died in all, in all those events of Easter week for us, is with us. We are... Romans talks about that and back in chapter 6, that we are united with him in his death and in his resurrection life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so on your way to godliness, which is, which is a hard way, which is a hard path, no doubt, make sure you remember that God is right there with you. But secondly, the other great motivation that should help us is not only that God is with you, but very simply... And very obviously, God is God. After he tells Timothy to keep the commandment, Paul launches into this great catalog, this great list of who God is. As we seek to become godly, we need to remember the kind of God who is the ultimate aim of our quest. If God is supposed to be enough for us, That's what I've been trying to point out in the last couple of weeks here. If God is supposed to be enough for us, then this will finally convince us that he really is. Let's admit that we can sometimes doubt that fact that God is enough. Is God really enough when my spouse dies? Is God really enough when I've lost my job? Is God really enough when I've had a miscarriage? Or when we find out that we can't have children? Is God really enough when I get cancer? Is God really enough when I'm single and would desire nothing more than to get married? Is God really enough when I don't know what I'm going to do after I graduate? Is God really enough when I can't seem to fend off the same temptations over and over again? These are the kinds of questions and doubts that can pop up for all of us as we try to navigate our way through this life. And so this is, like I said, this is here to convince you that he is indeed enough. He is more than enough. He is amply enough. What kind of God is this? Look at verse 14. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Isn't this a great reminder, especially this week, when our neighbors to the south especially our loud neighbors to the south, are in a panic mode. Listen, God is the only sovereign. He is the king over all kings. He is el presidente over all presidents. God has no rivals. He trumps every so-called sovereign. See what I did there? 
God has no rivals. That is comforting. God alone has immortality. He's eternal. He has always lived. We can take hold of eternal life because we serve an eternal God. He dwells in unapproachable light and no one has seen him, no one has seen him or can see him. He's completely holy and he's pure to the point that his brightness is overwhelming. He is that holy. He remains unstained by the sins of man. Do you need any more motivation to strive for godliness? O man of God, O woman of God, O child of God? Do you need any more convincing that there is great gain in godliness with contentment? When you truly understand who God is, the things of this world will start to matter very little. When you truly understand who God is, you will be content in God. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. How ought we to respond to that kind of God? Well, after all that, the response becomes very obvious. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Our God and Heavenly Father, We confess that we don't often live, we don't often function as if you are enough. Oh, we might say you are, but our our doubt and our unbelief and, and even our affections sometimes tell a different story. Father, we pray that you might help us to desire you above all else. Help us to take flight from the things that might cause us to, to maybe drift from our devotion to you. Help us to continually run then towards righteousness and, and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Thank you that you empower us to, to do these things through the gospel. We strive with the energy that you give us through your Son, through the Spirit. We thank you that you are always with us. We pray that you not only help us as people, but also as a church to continually uh, strive together towards godliness. Help us to be who you have called us to be as your people, your children. And help us as we do that to then make a difference in in, in the community in which you have placed us as we serve here, as we go out from here into different places to do your work. Help us to be mindful of who we are and of whose we are and of who you have made us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.